Good morning, fellowship. It's good to be back with you. Open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Our verses will be 19 through 24. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. And as you're turning there, let me give us a little context. We're diving into the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is preaching about what it means to be a disciple. He's going to talk about our treasures. Treasures. Treasures and discipleship go together. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So again, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Follow along as I read. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's ask for the Lord's help this morning. Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would open our ears, that you would give us Attentive ears, as we listen to your word, please help us, please send your Holy Spirit to enliven our hearts. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. So it's not uncommon to see these words in a Christian household. And if you've seen them, you've probably seen them in some very fun font, like that papyrus font or, you know, that fun Pinterest font that you see all the time. You don't know what Pinterest is. That's okay. It's not that cool. Um, I've actually seen these words etched in stone, if you can believe that, right above someone's stovetop. All right, I'll, I'll spit them out. You know, what, what are these words? What are these Christian words that we see frequently? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua twenty four fifteen. Those words are spoken by Joshua right as he's about to die. And the people of Israel, they're on the border of the promised land, and Joshua is he's charging them. He's asking them. He's calling them to make a decision. He says, all right, people of Israel, who's it going to be? You know, me and my house, we, you know, we've made the right decision, but, you know, what about y'all? Is it going to be the gods of the Amorites, or is it going to be the Lord? And remember who Josh was talking to there. You know, he's not talking to the Canaanites. He's actually talking to the people of God. You know, the people who are already saved, if we can put it that way. So apparently, choosing to live for God isn't just for non-Christians. It's not something you have to do when you first believe, or even if you're just young no, choosing to live for God is something that we are constantly called to do. And that's what we see in our text this morning. 
We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is not preaching an evangelistic sermon. He's preaching to his disciples, not a bunch of pagans. And he's calling them, and he's calling us, to decide to live for God. He's calling us to devote ourselves to God, to rededicate ourselves to him. You know, Jesus is fine with a, you know, as for me in my house, quote on your walls. You know, don't feel condemned if you haven't. But, you know, first, before we put that quote on our walls, he wants it deep in our bones first. He's calling our devotion to God to be deep within us. So what's Jesus call on us sitting, or in my case, standing here today? His call is this. It's because God is worthy of his people's devotion. We should devote all of ourselves to him. And we're going to look at that in three ways. Three ways in how God calls us to be devoted to him. Very simply, we should devote our hearts to God, our minds to God, and our wills to God. Thanks to Martin Lloyd-Jones for the inspiration on those points. So first, we should devote our hearts to God. Look down again at verses 19 and 20. Let's read those again. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. In these verses, Jesus gives two very simple commands about where we should store our treasure and why. And notice that he he does not say, don't store up treasure. Don't love and value things. Bad. No, he doesn't say that. You know, to be human is to love, to value things. So no, Jesus doesn't call us not to do that. He calls us to love things rightly. He calls us to store them in the right place. Can't put things on earth. Got to put them in heaven. Now, why? Jesus gives two very simple reasons. First, it's because here, moth and rust destroy. What does that mean? It means that things tarnish with age. Things lose the luster that they had at first. You know, cars need repairs. Toys break. You know, you can't, you can't store certain things where you think you should be able to store them. Even, you know, if you have a boat, you can't store it in the water, actually, or else the boat's hull will corrode from the salt water or barnacles will colonize and destroy your boat. So the thing with moth and rust is that they do their work slowly. It takes years and years and years for them to do their work. But in the end, Jesus says it's going to destroy your stuff. So don't store stuff here because of moth and rust. And then secondly, these thieves are going to break in and steal your stuff. Now, unlike moth and rust, which you know works slowly to corrode your stuff over time, I mean, I don't know how thieves do their business, but I'm pretty sure that when they steal your laptop, they're not going to like steal it over weeks and weeks and weeks. No, they're going to take your laptop and they're going to go. You know, when they steal your stuff, it's it's gone. All at once. No warning. So those are the two reasons not to store stuff here, because 
It's going to get either destroyed very slowly or it's going to be taken from you like that. And there's one particularly villainous appliance that I think was designed to do both very well. One appliance both steals your stuff and destroys it slowly. And that appliance is, of course, the dryer. You put an even number of socks into the dryer, and you get an odd number out. It robs your stuff. It steals you. And then it breaks your stuff slowly. Maybe not so slowly. I don't know. Maybe I'm the robber or the you know moth and rust in this illustration. But, you know, I put stuff in, and it shrinks. Too many good cotton shirts, too many, like, Jackets with little drawstrings on them, they, all, they, they get all tangled up and messed up because of the dryer. So moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, dryers do both. So, of course, Jesus is not just talking about physical treasures. He's not just talking about clothes and laptops and things like that. You know, a treasure is anything that you care deeply about. So this includes our families and our friends. And even if we love and value these things more than we should, you know, if we lay them up on earth, if we love them before we love God, we can be sure that they're going to corrode. They're going to be taken away from us. This earth is not the place to put our happiness. Stuff breaks here. Sin ruins things. This earth disappoints us if it is our hope of happiness. So to store things on earth, Jesus says, is foolish because we ultimately lose them. But that's not where he concludes. Look at verse 21 with me. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The most important thing to Jesus isn't what happens to our stuff. It's what happens to us what happens to our hearts. So why does Jesus connect treasures on the one hand with our hearts on the other? Well, what he's saying is this. He's saying that, you know, as we watch the things that we love corrode before our eyes, our hearts are going to corrode with them. As we see the things that we love shrivel, our hearts will shrivel with them. If we store our treasures here and they're taken away from us, we're going to be left heartless. Our hearts are invested in our treasures. We're bound up in them. As they rise and fall, then so do we. You know, Lloyd-Jones has a helpful test for determining whether we're loving something too much here. You know, he says that whatever your feelings or affections are all bound up in, you know, that, that's going to be your treasure. So when do you get angry? You get angry when someone is threatening your treasure. When do you get upset? You get upset when you realize you're not going to get your treasure. When do you become passionate? And you know your treasure's just within reach and you just got to fight for it. So if your heart is all bound up 
and obsessed with something other than God, then you're loving it too much. You're storing it on earth, which is why you're all bound up and why you're all disheveled over it, because you know instinctively that earth is not a good place to store stuff. And you know that that treasure isn't going to last, but you keep fighting for it because you love it too much. You can't view it objectively because it has your heart. So who or what is on your heart? Are our hearts devoted to God or are they devoted to something else? Jesus calls us to be devoted to God with all of our hearts. Let's look at our second point here, which is that we're called to love, our, love God, be devoted to God with all of our mind too. Look at verses 22 and 23 with me. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So it might look like Jesus just completely shifts topics here to to talk about the eyes now, but he's actually continuing the theme of treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. And he does it by focusing on our eyes. And when he says that the eye is the lamp of the body, basically he's saying that the eyes are the way we look at the world. So Jesus says that there are two ways, basically, of looking at the world. There's the way of the bad eye, and then there's the way of the good eye. So what's the way of the bad eye? The bad eye person looks at things without reference to God. person looks at things in the world as ends in, in and of themselves. They look at their job, their relationship, their money, all without reference to God. The bad eye person sees the things of the world just to be used and enjoyed without God's blessing or even acknowledging him. What happens from living that way? What happens from living earthly bound, never looking to heaven? Verse 23, Jesus says, darkness. Darkness. Because the person who thinks that they can make sense of the world without God and Christ, they're just living in complete moral darkness. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that they're as bad as they possibly could be. It doesn't mean that bad-eye people are all murderers and adulterers and things like that. It just means that they can't see reality. Because if something has so controlled someone's vision... Someone loves something that much that they can't see God as being relevant in it. That person, as Jesus says, is in great darkness. These people are worse than blind. Blind people know to use a stick. But these people don't because they think they can see, but they can't. So that's the person with the bad eye. They look at everything in the world and they think that God just has nothing to do with it. Now, the person with the good eye is, of course, the exact opposite. So in one of his writings, or maybe this is just a theme of his writings, but St. Augustine, the 5th century church father, talks about good eye people, if I can rephrase his thinking. 
his basic point about good eye people is this. A good eye person uses everything they encounter as a means of loving God. So when Augustine went to the ice cream shop, you know, and he got a little scoop of ice cream, he used that ice cream, as it were, to love God more. He used that ice cream to to give thanks to God for giving us taste buds. I don't think we needed taste buds. That's just God's goodness to us. You know, so when Augustine got ice cream, he didn't just like eat the ice cream and think of nothing else. No, he used that ice cream as a means of loving God. So good eye people, they look at things and they say, how can I thank God for that thing? How can I, how can I use this experience? How can I use this relationship to love God more? You know, everything they look at is God-centered and God-focused. That's the person with the good eye. Their mind is always straying towards God. They're always thinking about God. Maybe a better way of putting it, instead of straying, is that they've actively fixed their mind on God. They've devoted their minds to God, and so whatever they think about, whatever they see, they see God. Now, at this point, I probably could offer a few applications about how to think about God more. And I probably could suggest many things. I could could suggest memorizing the Bible, because how better to think about God than to have his word on your mind? And as I just recently graduated seminary, I could have given you about 100 book recommendations for thinking about God, for developing a Christian worldview. And I could have listed a bunch of things, and y'all might have found it helpful, but at this point, I want to address something that many of you are thinking right now. Many of you have been listening, and you've been thinking to yourself, okay, up to this point, all you've said is that Jesus is calling us to devote our hearts to God, so we're, we're to love God and heavenly things more than we love earthly things, and we're called to think about God and heavenly things and Christ when, you know, whenever we're walking and using things, you know, that's what we're supposed to do, right, Mr. Preacher? And yes, that is what we're supposed to do. That is what I've been saying. So thank you for paying attention. But I haven't gotten to what you're really thinking. What you're really thinking is, isn't that so obvious? Yeah, it is obvious. It's painfully obvious. This has been the most painfully obvious sermon you've ever listened to to this point. If you're a Christian, loving God and thinking about God should be pretty much bread and butter for you. It's in the great two commandments. It's in the Ten Commandments. We're called to love God. Of course we are. That's so obvious. But if you're like me, You've known the right thing to do. It's been obvious the right thing to do. And you just haven't done it. I mean, we're not talking about like complex moral dilemmas. We're talking about just the the right thing to do and you haven't done it. That's us. But Jesus, this morning 
is not going to let us wriggle away. He's calling us to make a decision. He doesn't want us to limp between two different opinions. He doesn't want us to you know, push off this, this thinking about God for another time. No, Jesus wants us to choose. So he's calling us to devote our wills to God. He's calling us to live entirely for God. Look at verse 24. Let's read it again. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or the footnote says mammon, stuff. It's not possible. Teaching again here is as plain as day. It's either God is first in us or someone else or something else is. It's either God or money. There's no in-between. I think this verse has got to be up there for one of Jesus' most offensive teachings. And it's because he's calling us to be devoted to God with all of who we are. I mean, just look at the stark either-or nature of what Jesus says. You know, he says that no one can serve two masters. There's no middle way. You're either going to hate the one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's, there's no in-between. So I became a Christian in high school, and I started going to young life and church and things like that. And uh, one of my peers saw the new direction I was going. And he pulled me aside and, you know, just wanted to give me some advice. He said, Harris, you know, keep going to church. Keep going to Young Life. That's, that's great. But Harris, don't go God squat on me. Don't go God squat on me. Translation? Yeah, of, yeah, of course you can, you can go to church and obey God, but you're, you're, you're still going to hang out with us, right? Still going to do the, the good old things, right? Still going to swear and cuss and do other bad things with us, right? And from a worldly st- standpoint, that actually sounds like pretty good advice. I mean, which one of you has a financial planner who says, no, all right, let's talk about this. Let's talk about retirement. Let's talk about the next 20 years. We're going to liquidate all of your a- assets. We're going to put them into this one stock. You're going to be up. No, of course. That's terrible financial advice. You don't do that. But it's very good spiritual advice. Because that's what Jesus is calling us to. You can't serve God and money. Don't diversify here. No. All God or all money you got to go all in with God. He's actually putting it stronger than that. He's saying that it's either you're all in for God or you're all in for something else. So it's either God is first or something else is. There's no middle option. So why does Jesus call us to devote all of our lives to God? 
I mean, why can't we just follow my high school peer's advice and just obey God in, in some areas and, and not in others? Why can't we just rope off just, just a few sections? Just, just a few. Well, it's because of who God is. I mean, we need to remember the God Jesus is calling us to be devoted to. We need to remember who God is. God's been telling us who he is. Christ has been telling us who God is throughout this entire sermon. It's that name of God that you and I should treasure above all others. That God is our Father. So the God who is the master of all things, who created all things, who rules all things, is our Father, if you are a Christian. God is our perfect Father. Matthew 5.48 God is our Father who knows what we need. Matthew 6.8 God is our Father who forgives our sins in Jesus' name. Matthew 6.12 And, of course, the one calling us to the Father is himself also God. So we're called to be devoted to the God who is also our Father who cares for us and Christ who is, who is Christ? Is he cruel? Do you just love just beating us up with commandments? No. He's gentle. He's lowly in heart. He's patient with us. He forgives us our sins in his name. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So that is why Jesus is calling us to be fully devoted to God and to himself. You know, don't hear the call as, man, I have really not been living as I should lately. I really got to shape up or else God's going to pummel me. It's going to make my life difficult. It's going to twist my arm, so I better just Just shape up and obey because, you know, I don't want God to do bad things to me. No, that's don't hear that as the call. The call is devotion to a person, not to abstract principles. You know, devotion to God is both for his glory, first and foremost, but it's also for our happiness and our good, too. You know, it's actually when you're not devoted to God that you're unhappy, and that you're miserable. I mean, look at what the opposite is in verse 24. There's another master that you will be devoted to. Everybody serves somebody. So it's either God or it's something else. Something else is going to be your master. And masters make demands. Now, while Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, other masters are not going to be. Other treasures are going to demand everything, too. That's what a master does. A master demands everything. So it really depends on the character of the master if you're going to be happy. Other masters want all of your service, too. They want all of your devotion, too, with none of the grace. So that's the call. It's either God or something else. 
And it's actually when we choose to make God first, when we choose, when we decide that God comes first no matter what, that we can actually start to experience freedom. You know, that's what God intends for his children is freedom. Devotion to any other master is slavery. So I want us to ask ourselves this morning, are we devoted to God? Have we decided that God comes first no matter what? How do you know? How do you know if you are devoted to God? Let's use Jonathan Edwards to give us some help. He gives three characteristics of those who are devoted to God. And he says the first characteristic is this, is that you don't merely try to avoid some sins or to obey some commands, but you have purpose to obey every single command, every word that comes from the mouth of God. You have said, God, the Holy Spirit, make me holy in every square inch of my life. So that's the first mark. What's the second mark? that your resolution to be devoted to God, it, it doesn't waver. That doesn't mean it's absolutely perfect, but it doesn't mean that you come in here on a Sunday and you're like, mm, God, let's go. Then you walk out of here and Monday, Tuesday, and every other day, it's like, okay, well, I'll just live for myself now. No, your resolution to be devoted to God doesn't waver. Christ is your shepherd and you are going to follow him, whatever may come. And the last mark is this, is that you remain devoted to God when life becomes difficult, or when obeying becomes difficult. So when life becomes difficult, you remain focused on God. You refuse to let life's difficulties dampen your love for God. Actually, those who are devoted to God, they use trials and they come out of them loving God more. And similarly, when obeying God becomes really difficult, you scrape together all you have, all your energy, all your resources, and you pay the price of that costly devotion because you've determined that God is worth it. You've counted the cost and God is worth it. So, are we devoted to God? Is God first in our lives? Now, because we still struggle with sin, it is impossible in this life to be fully, perfectly devoted to God. Fully purposing to to obey Him, no matter how difficult it is. That is impossible for us because... We still struggle with sin. It's only Jesus who was that perfectly devoted to God. And it's through his devotion to God that we have been saved. So yes, it is impossible to be perfectly devoted to God. But it is not impossible to be truly devoted to God. Possible to be perfect, yet we can be truly devoted to him. Because Christ has sent the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit to help us, to work 
Jesus' actual devotion to the Father in us. So no, Jesus is not calling us to perfect devotion to God. He's calling us to true devotion, to firm devotion. So yeah, I want to say this morning that you can be devoted to God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, or will. And if you choose that God's going to be first no matter what, I bet that you would be surprised in a few months or a few years about how far you've come, about how, how far you go to obey God. How can I say that? How, how do I know that you would be surprised? How can I say that I know that you can be devoted to God? It's not impossible. It's because you and I know real-life Christians who are like that. You and I know real Christians who are that devoted to God. They're the ones who use those trials and come out singing. You know, they're the ones who just can't stop talking about Jesus. And we know fellow Christians who've made incredibly costly and life-altering decisions seemingly without thinking because they had determined devote themselves to God. Robertson McQuilkin is such a picture of devotion to God through his devotion to his wife. McQuilkin was the president of Columbia International University, so he's at the very top of his career. But when he realized that his wife, Muriel, developed Alzheimer's at a relatively early age, when he realized that she needed him because she'd get terrified when he wasn't there. He quit his job that day, seemingly, eight years before he was scheduled for retirement. People were stunned. In his resignation speech, he said this, when the time came, the decision was easy. Why? Because he said, I had vowed to my God and to these witnesses 42 years earlier, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Thirteen years later, his wife died. McQuilkin was there all those long years. He cared for her all those long days. And it's not ultimately because he was devoted to his wife. It's because he was devoted to his God. Pray. Father, we love your law. We thank you for your law. Your law is our delight. We pray that you would help us as we seek to devote all of ourselves to you. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.